Welcome back, humans. In this episode, I have another meditation that is based on a daily gospel reading. And again, as you may expect, I found this meditation in Magnificat. Surprise, surprise. It's one of my favorite magazines, and again, I'll give you another plug. It's an apostolate of the Dominican Order, and I will, again, put a link in the show notes and description for you to learn some more about Magnificat. So let's jump right into it. So this meditation was given for the... 27th, I believe, of February. Let me verify that quickly. I do believe it was the 27th. Could have been the 28th, though. Christian perfection. Let's see. 28th. Meditation of the day. New. So it was the... 25th. Nope. It was the 27th. It had to have been. There we go. I was right the first time. Okay. So this meditation was given for the 27th of February, which was a Saturday. And the the meditation goes like this. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by their country, speech, or customs. The fact is, they nowhere settle in cities of their own. They use no peculiar language. They cultivate no eccentric mode of life. This creed of theirs is no discovery due to some fancy or speculation. Nor do they, as some do, champion a doctrine of human origins. Yet while they conform to the customs of each country in dress, food, and mode of life in general, a mode of life in general, the whole tenor of their way of living stamps it as worthy of admiration and admittedly extraordinary. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. They obey established laws, but in their private lives, they rise above the laws. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown, yet condemned. They are put to death, but it is life that they receive. They are poor and enrich many. They are destitute of everything. They abound destitute of everything. They abound in everything. So when they are destitute of everything... They abound in everything. They are dishonored, and in their dishonor they find glory. They are calumniated and are vindicated. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and render honor. Doing good, they are penalized as evildoers. When penalized, they rejoice because they are quickened into life. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all the members of the body and Christians throughout the cities of the world. Immortal, the soul is lodged in a moral tenement. Mortal tenement. So too, 
Christians, though residing as strangers among corruptible things, look forward to the incorruptibility that awaits them in heaven. The soul, when stinting itself in food and drink, fares the better for it, so too Christians, when penalized, show a daily increase of numbers on that account. Such is the important post to which God has assigned them, and they are not at liberty to desert it. It was really the Lord of all, the creator of all, the invisible God himself, who of his own free will from heaven lodged among men the truth and the holy incomprehensible word, and firmly established it in their hearts. This is from the epistle to Diognetus, Diognetus, D-O-G-N-E-T-U-S, is a work, the epistle of Diognetus, is a work of early Christian apologetics, likely from the second century, and it comes from ancient Christian writers, the works of the fathers, in translation. This was translated by James A. Kleist, S.J., published in 1948. And again, I found it in Magnificat, and I found it very interesting that he, the author, I'm assuming it's a he, the author says that even though Christians don't really stand out in any particular way from others, they they look pretty ordinary compared to other people, they still are extraordinary in one particular thing. And that is that when they are persecuted, they do not retaliate. They do not fight back violently when violence is committed against them. Instead, they're blessed. They increase in number. They increase in serenity. They increase in virtue. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to other people. So, therefore, that is the only way people will know that they are Christians. That they show love in the face of evil and violence. As Jesus told us, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I found that very fascinating. It's a truth I've heard before but had never heard that way before. And so I thought, well, wonderful. Let's see where that is in the dialogue. But before we do that, I want to read, it's a small passage of the gospel that was the reading for that day that this meditation is based on. It's from Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, which says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good, and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what a recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect." So you can see the connection there. Jesus, again, in different wording, is saying, this is how people will know that you are children of my Father, that you are my disciples, if you do not repay evil for evil, 
but instead you repay love. And you pray for those who hate you and persecute you. Because if you show love and kindness to those who show love and kindness to you, that's, that's no different from anybody else. Everybody does that. This is the only way you will be known to be Christians. Because otherwise, Jesus is basically insinuating that you will not look any different from anyone else. You will be just exactly the same as everyone else around you. No one will know you're a Christian or not. But if you do as I have said and pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies, then they will know that you are Christians. That is the stamp. That is the mark that will distinguish you from the rest. Because that is something so unusual, people will be astounded and bewildered and even scandalized by it. They will be troubled by it. They will be disturbed by it. They will ask, how does this person do this? And so in the dialogue, God explains to Catherine that the way somebody does this, there's a particular way someone can do this. Someone can actually achieve loving their enemies in the face of violence. God explains to her the condition that that person's soul has to be in in order for them to do that. He says, When the soul, then, has come to taste this light, after so delightfully seeing and knowing it, she runs to the table of holy desire, in love, as she is, and eager with a lover's restlessness. She has no eyes for herself, for seeking her own spiritual or material comfort. Rather, as one who has completely drowned her own will in this light and knowledge, she shuns no burden, from whatever source it may come. She even endures the pain of shame and vexations from the devil and other people's grumbling. Feasting at the table of the Most Holy Cross, an honor for me, God eternal, and salvation for others. She seeks no recompense either from me or from others, because she is stripped of any mercenary love, of any loving me for her own profit. She is clothed in perfect light and loves me sincerely without any other concern than the glory and praise of my name. She does not serve me for her own pleasure or her neighbors for her own profit, but only for love." Souls such as these have let go of themselves, have stripped off their old nature, their selfish sensu sensuality, and clothed themselves in a new nature, the gentle Christ Jesus, my truth, and they follow him courageously. These are they who have sat down at the table of holy desire, and have set their minds more on slaying their selfish will than on mortifying and killing their bodies. They have, it is true, mortified their bodies, but not as their chief concern. Rather, they have used mortification as the instrument it is to help them slay their self-will. I told you this when I was explaining my statement that I would have few words and many deeds. And this is what you should do. Your chief desire ought to be to slay your selfish will, so that it neither seeks nor wants anything but to follow my gentle truth, Christ crucified, by seeking the honor and glory of my name and the salvation of souls. Those who live in this gentle light do just this. Therefore, they are always peaceful and calm, and nothing can scandalize them, because they have done away with what causes them to take scandal. Their selfish will. Their self-will. They trample underfoot all the persecutions of the world, and the devil can hound, and all the persecutions the world and the devil can hound them with. 
They can stand in the water of great troubles and temptations, but it cannot hurt them because they are anchored to the vine of burning desire. Now, persecution is treated in 23 different places in the dialogue. This is the one of 23 that I found most fitting. And as I said earlier, God explains to Catherine here just exactly how someone can, in the face of persecution and evil and temptation and all the rest of it, remain peaceful and calm and still give love to those who are hating them. It is only when they have let go of themselves and stripped themselves of their own will and attached themselves to God's will that they can do this. I felt it necessary to explain this because many people will hear this passage about loving our enemies and say, well, how do you do that? How does anyone do that? And a common answer you might receive when you ask this question is, well, with God's help or with God's grace, you can do this. And it's not a bad answer, but if you're like me, you will often find that answer to be unsatisfying. It just seems sort of vague. Oh, God's grace. Somehow, mysteriously, God's grace will come down upon me. And magically, I will transform into a very loving person who's always calm, even when people are throwing things at me and spitting on me and hating me. Eh, That doesn't seem very likely. (laughs) Doesn't sound very human. But what God explains to Catherine in the dialogue does. When you have gone through the arduous work of stripping yourself of your own self-will and not loving God for what he can do for you and not loving other people for what they can do for you, but doing it simply because it's the right thing to do and it's what God wills, once you have done that, then you can sit peacefully in the midst of persecutions. And that doesn't mean that you will always be very stoic and never have any kind of emotions. But as God says, you won't be scandalized by it. You won't be led into sin by it. You won't be shocked and afraid. Yeah, you will be saddened by it. Yeah, it's not uncomfortable. But that's why you pray for them. That's why you talk to God about it. Prayer is basically just talking to God about it. Offering up the the agonizing pain and the, the frustration and the distress these people are causing by their actions. You offer that to God and it's a prayer for them. But ultimately, you will not give back to them what they have given to you, and that will stand out. That will be something unusual. That will mark you as a child of God and a follower of Christ. I hope that you have enjoyed this talk. I hope that you benefit from it. And if you have, I hope that you share it with others that you know will also benefit from it. May you have a very blessed day. And may you love your enemies.